Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, art historian and author Mary Beard. Beard's new book is 12 Caesars, Images of Power from the Ancient World to the Modern. It details how, for more than two millennia, portraits of the rich and powerful have been informed by portraits of Roman emperors, and often by portraits believed to be of Roman emperors. It also investigates how 12 murderous rulers came to be so prominent in the work of artists and in the minds of patrons ever after. The book descends from Beard's 2011 Mellon Lectures at the National Gallery of Art. IndieBound and Amazon each offer it for about $35. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Tabitha Soren on her new book and exhibition at the Mills College Art Museum in Oakland. But first, Mary Beard, after the break. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photoflux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S., Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries in a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art, Antiquities, European, and American Masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. mfah.org slash Seraphim Collection. And we're back. Mary Beard, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Nice to be with you. One of the ideas at the core of your new book, 12 Caesars, is that for images of the Caesars, the the 12 leaders of post-Republican and Imperial Rome, to be influential across millennia of Western history and art, each of them merely had to be identified as person X, that their visage, the, the truth of their likeness, confidence and truth of their likeness ended up being unimportant. So it's, it's art history in which the art has more importance than what the art shows, because we don't really know what the Caesars look like. That's a thorough disemboweling of pictorial importance in a very exciting way. How did it come to happen that what these 12 people actually looked like ended up not mattering? It's a really interesting question because it somehow it turns our ideas about portraiture on the head. You know, this, these, are, these are portraits where the, all we have and their image is defined within how 
somebody didn't just choose to represent them, but how somebody subsequently chose to identify them. <laughs> and so it's a kind of great sort of topsy-turvy version. I mean, I think that there's lots of things that contribute to that. And it goes back to the ancient world. I mean, we can say, look, from the Renaissance onwards, people defined, they didn't really know, but they defined a kind of traditional standardised physiognomics for Nero or Augustus or any of them. And that's partly the case. But I think it's that was partly also the case in antiquity itself. I mean, people often say to me, we go to a museum and there's a, a bust and underneath it'll say Caligula or Vitellius or the Emperor Claudius. How do we know that they were them? Well, I think the answer to that is even then we don't. And even then the Romans didn't. There is there's already a kind of sense of extraordinary con- conventionality going back. And almost none of these portraits are named. You know, that's that's one thing that people find quite, I think, hard to, and I do too, to kind of, you, you've got endless portraits, thousands and thousands surviving portraits of Roman emperors. And, you know, uh, only a few dozen have got a name on. Now, originally that might have been different because they might have been put on bases and plinths, which, which were named. But I think that from as far back as you can go, people were deciding, oh, Nero. They didn't know it was Nero. You know, here we are, we're out in kind of absolutely ghastly, darkest Britannia in the Roman Empire. And they invented the identity of some of these statues. And so it's it's a kind of, as I say, it's a very strange bit of portraiture without any bottom. You know, it is what you see is what you get, and we've all been reinventing it forever. (laughs) The book unfolds like a fascinating detective story in that it kind of reveals how images were assigned to names and then perpetuated across Europe and then were picked up by artists later. One of the key ways you note how all this happened was through initially the dispersal of Roman, Roman coins and then, of course, through the Renaissance, the Western Renaissance, fascination of of such coins as a collectible. So could you maybe give us an example of maybe using Caesar of how the coins, Julius Caesar, of how the coins traveled and how a a tiny coin representation, you know, like a coin the size of your thumb or something, came to stand for Caesar and be perpetuated? What what made Caesar recognizable via coin? Or what made Caesar seem to be recognisable. Right. Yes, totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. I mean, uh, Caesar's a very good case, actually, because Caesar is the first Roman minting coins in Rome to have his head, living head, on the coin. There were heads on the coins before, but they were always of dead ancestors. And one of the signs of Caesar's autocracy, really, is that he put his head on the coin. And That's always been extremely important for people who wanted to find images of Caesar. Because although I've said, and it's true, that sculptures of these emperors, if you count Julius Caesar in with them, only very, very, very rarely named now, coins were brilliant for people trying to do identifications because they did have a name on. And so 
Caesar is an absolutely classic case. You have really kind of one, there's a few more, but there's one standout image of Julius Caesar, which was minted on a coin very shortly before he was assassinated. And it's it, people think of it as extremely distinctive because he's got a very scraggy neck and a very large Adam's apple, and he's slightly gaunt. And for absolutely centuries, millennia now, the main way of people pinning a name to a marble sculpture was to try and match this up with a coin. If you find a sculpture that looks like the coin, then you can call it Caesar, right? which is how still, honestly, most images of Caesar are ancient images of Caesar are identified. But what's an absolute hoot in some ways is that, of course, you know, no sooner as some image of Caesar matched the coin, held pride of place as Caesar, right? And it's on the front cover of every blasted book on Caesar. Then somebody comes along and says, no, no, no. You know, it's not that. It's not, well, either it isn't really a match or, no, actually it's a fake. And so you get a kind of whole series going back three, four hundred years, but probably longer, of people fighting over which marble statue of Caesar is as like what we think of Caesar in inverted commas, as I say, which marble statue of Caesar is most like, most authentically like the coin portrait. Now, actually, anybody with a real wit can see that it's almost impossible to match up coin portraits with marble sculpture. You know, and in, in the 18th century, people like Winkelmann and Cardinal Albani, they were, they were actually more suspicious than we are. And they said, I'm not sure you can do this. <laughs> I'm not sure that you can really make that match or that any real marble heads, original marble heads of Caesar have survived. But Caesar is such an alluring figure. I mean, I have to say, you know, monstrous genocidal maniac and alluring figure in some ways. So that people are always wanting to, to pin him down. But it it all goes back really to these these coins of 44 BC and and the scraggy neck. Yeah, the scraggy neck shows up. There are a lot of examples in the book. We'll have a couple on manpodcast.com on the show page of these two or three lines along one side of Caesar's neck. And they kind of, I guess, in, in, in terms of how we've all been taught, taught art history, they kind of exist as a sort of attribute. So when you get into Catholic, capital C, Catholic art, and every martyr is pictured with the instrument of his or her martyrdom or a, or a signifier of his or her martyrdom, Caesar has an attribute, but it's not of his martyrdom. It's of his neck. Yes, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's right in a way. Though I think that that attribute appears more distinctive because people have did not searched for all the other coins of Roman worthies, mythical ones in this case before Caesar, and not, not remotely contemporary people, but, but ancestors. And you can find quite a few of those who've got scraggy necks too. <laughs> but we're so desperate to find an attribute, find a key to unlock the image of Caesar, that the scraggy neck really... You know, it, it becomes absolutely central. And but what you say about about saints, I think, is also quite important because we are used to perhaps unnamed 
and perhaps you know, fantasy portraits coming along with something which enables you from the outside, an attribute to identify it. So, you know, St. Catherine and her wheel and St. Peter and his keys. What is extraordinary, and this is, this is why the scraggy neck has been so important, is that these ancient Roman images, they, they don't come along with an attribute. And all you've got is the face. The bodies right. are all the same. I mean, in British history, if you look at the kings of Britain, you'd see that, well, there's the rather hunched Richard III and there's the very portly Henry VIII. Every imperial body is the yeah. same. And what the Romans did was put some version, almost certainly very, very remotely related to, the, to what the emperor actually looked like. They put a, a generic head on top of a generic body. I think we'll talk more about that as we go along in terms of both men and women, actually. So you wrote, uh, quote, portraits were designed to make the emperor look the part, which makes sense, which I can understand. But one of the things I kept finding in 12 Caesars was how <laughs> the part was sometimes of a jowly, fat, balding guy. And sometimes it was a square jawed, serious, athletic looking type. And of course, everything in between on that spectrum. Ergo, how is it that all of these things can look the part? The jowls look the part, the square jaw looks the part. Or, or maybe <laughs> what should this range teach us about how imperial power must look at a specific given moment? I think that what you'd find is that there are some broad shifts in what looking the part means. Mm. And so you go for decades when emperors tend to look the same. And that's very clear at the beginning of the Roman Empire after leaving aside Julius Caesar, the first proper emperor, Augustus. And all Augustus's immediate descendants all look like Augustus. <laughs> that's because uh. you know, looking the part then meant saying, right, okay, I'm in descent from the guy who gives me legitimacy on the throne, therefore I must look like Augustus. Now, the truth is, and there's always this kind of nasty underbelly to it, that because they all look the same, we never know exactly who they are. And you, know, you, you can go to a museum and you can see something which says, Roman imperial portrait bust, perhaps Caligula, question mark, perhaps Lucius Caesar, you know, and... That's because actually they all look like each other. But in the history of the empire then, I mean, what happens is that how the emperor, for all sorts of political reasons, really, wants to look changes. And two very kind of very striking cases of that. And one is at the end of the first dynasty, the, the first dynasty following Augustus. And it ends with the, the so-called monstrous Nero, who did ter terrible things like fiddling with, while Rome burned and performing on stage. And was a, a, his portraits are, are kind of in the Augustan mould, but slightly more Greekizing, slightly more flamboyant. Nero is ousted. Civil War. And then new guy on the throne is Vespasian. And one thing what the Vespasian wants to do is to say, I am taking over the empire and I am nothing like Nero. <laughs> but, but that's the point of being Vespasian. And so Vespasian comes along and He's kind of slightly wrinkled. You know, he's not a pretty boy. He's a kind of tough, old-fashioned, middle-aged Roman-looking guy. And in a sense, what he's doing, we have no idea what he looks like, but he's clearly marking the difference between him and his main predecessor. 
And I think that's quite obvious case. One of the much more puzzling and still highly debated changes of image comes in the second century AD with the Emperor Hadrian, because suddenly emperors have beards. Emperors have been clean shaven up to that point, and then emperors become bearded. Now, we have no reason to suppose that there is a direct link between their shaving habits, there may have been, but we don't know, between their shaving habits and how they're represented. So the question's always been, why suddenly does the emperor, does looking the part of the emperor mean curly hair and a beard? One explanation for that, I'm not sure it's right, is that Hadrian is very much trading on a kind of philosophical image of a ruler. And so what his portraits are doing or whoever's deciding how to make him look, they've got half an eye on the whole tradition of Greek philosophy and what a philosopher looks like. So you get different versions of what it is. There there are more than one ways of looking the part of an emperor, but not very many. You know, we talked about coins a moment ago. You note in 12 Caesars many ways in which the emperors and their hangers-on circulated images of them throughout the empire and how important that was. This book originated as a Mellon lecture back in, I think, 2011. You've had 10 years and quite a period in particularly <laughs> Western, yes. <laughs> Western history to, to continue to think about all this. So what, what did you learn or what have you come to understand about why leaders think they needed and indeed need to circulate representations of themselves as a kind of justification of their autocracy? Image and autocracy goes very much together. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. But, you know, I think that the sense that imperial, dynastic, autocratic power is underpinned by, in a sense, making the autocrat omnipresent, you know, that that you cannot live. I'm not talking about the country here. I'm talking about the towns. But you can't live in towns of the Roman Empire without your cityscape, as it were, being invaded by the imperial head. You can't go out to do your shopping, even in the countryside, without carrying the emperor's head around in your pocket or your purse. And there there is something about how to make the emperor omnipresent in a world where actually most people would never have seen him. The number of people who in their lifetime would catch sight of the living emperor is tiny, but his, his face is everywhere you go, is is inescapable. And I think it's about somehow kind of just imprinting the power of the emperor, not just in the local forum, but also, you know, you can't buy your loaf of bread without handing over a picture of the emperor. I think it's about, it's really the first, Alexander the Great did it a little bit, but it's really the first kind of case of linking the image of the ruler with the omnipresence of the image of the ruler with the ruler's power. So, you know, suddenly we still live in monarchies are the inheritors or, you know, the reason that we see the queen on, the, on our coins is precisely because that's what Julius Caesar started doing. So about this question of, of representation or, or at least gesture toward it, you detail across the entire book many examples of how leaders in England, in Western Europe, in the United States, were and have long been represented as being Roman. 
let me ask you a question that you yourself pose in the book, which is how on earth did your portrait make it clear you were being represented as a Roman Democrat, or maybe in the transatlantic context as a Roman Republican, and not as a Roman emperor or as an autocrat? That was always the big problem, particularly in the United States, because there is a a sad fact about what remains, the material, visual culture remains of the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic is what the founding fathers founded your country on, a tradition of quasi-democracy, power sharing, and they usually abominated the autocratic rule of the emperors, you know, for the obvious reason, it looked a hell of a lot like British monarchs. The difficulty is that if you admire the Republic and you admire the literature, Cicero and Sallust, for example, written under the Republic, and you want somehow to recreate the Republic and you want to recreate yourself as a Republican Roman, you've got a real problem because very, very little sculpture, particularly sculpture, survives from the Roman Republic. Almost everything that we see of Rome is from the age of the autocrats. And so you're in a jam because in order to recreate yourself as a Roman and to use the kind of examples that you you see in the museums of Italy or whatever, you're awfully in danger of ending up recreating yourself as a Roman emperor rather than as an upstanding Roman Republican Democrat. They don't ever really find much of a solution to this. They kind of tend to sort of cut the luxury a bit so that whereas somebody who is aping a Roman emperor will have very florid toga, sometimes kind of even more florid bit of decorated armour, those people who are wanting to move to, to, to try to kind of hitch into a Republican image tend to make it much more austere. And there's one very nice example where the guy has himself done certainly in a sort of Roman toga, but you can't really tell. But you can see that the, the sculptor really, really wants to say, this is not an emperor. This is not an emperor. So on the bottom of the plinth of this bust, he, uh, the sculptor sculpts, engraves two daggers and a little Roman so-called cap of liberty. And that was the the logo that the assassins of Julius Caesar put on their coins after they killed Caesar. So by putting it on a sculpture rather desperately, you're saying this is not an emperor. This is somebody who is on the side of those who kill autocrats. The Liberty Cap lives large in American art history. Thomas Crawford's Dome of the U.S. Capitol was originally designed with a figure wearing a Liberty cap, and then Senator Jefferson Davis blocked it. And of course, most recently, the sculptor Martin Purrier included sculptures of informed by the Liberty cap form in his American represent in his representation of the United States at a recent Venice Biennale. It turns out, I mean, when in the 18th century, I think that there was there was no there was no doubt about what what was being said here, but but it it becomes very very tricky. All these symbols bite back. And I've just been looking at some Victorian personifications of different countries done in Britain, and they dress up America in a cap of liberty, which I think is, I think in that case, is a really jingoistic attempt to say you were once our slave. 
they're very, very hard to pin down, tricky. I think there's some relationships here American art historians have, have some work to do on. One famous, maybe infamous would be a better word, American sculpture you reference in the book is Horatio Greeno's <laughs> awful sculpture of George Washington, which I actually just made kind of a key part of a book I wrote. You know, in terms of this complicated question of how you deal with the Roman past, I wrote that <laughs> Greeno presented the progenitor of American republicanism as a martial aristocrat composed from a French description of a Greek sculpture made from Italian marble. You know, yes. you mishmash it away from, from the imperial. Yeah. They always have. If you're a British king or a would-be kind of, you know, a British aristocrat, you have no problem about making yourself look like a Roman emperor. You might think twice about modelling yourself on Nero, but in a sense, the kind of the autocratic dynastic power is fine. As soon as you want to use these images, which people do, outside that monarchical tradition, they have trouble. Well, one of the fun things the book does, and here's where the detective story accelerates, is you, you show us how artists over the last five or 600 years have extended these imperial Roman forms. We talked a moment ago about how all the bodies are the same. Maybe one way to begin to talk about how sculptors and their patrons would kind of vaguely wave toward Imperial Rome is through a sculpture that Ippolito Buzzi made. See, there's my Italian. of Alessandro Farnese, a 17th century sculpture. How does that work both borrow from, if that's the phrase, and build upon, if that's the phrase, <laughs> ancient Rome? <laughs> well, this is another kind of version of how you play with and exploit ancient traditions. And that full-length portrait of Alessandro Farnese is extremely interesting. It's in the Capitoline Museums in Rome now, uh, where I have to say it's not the most admired piece there, um, because it looks a bit of a sort of composite mishmash, which it is, because what it is, is a, an ancient body of a sculpt of, of a full-length sculpture. It's quite restored, but it's, it's an ancient body. And the sculptor has removed the head, whatever the head was, we don't know, believed to be of Julius Caesar, but you know, probably um, believed to be is where you should emphasize. Um, <laughs> and has put into the body a, a head of Alessandro Farnese. So you have literally a modern head on an ancient body, and on an ancient body that was at that point believed to be the body of Julius Caesar. So in a sense, you're kind of, you're trying to, to exploit and reuse and keep alive, I think, in some way, that ancient statue in the light of and with the head of a modern aristocrat. He was an aristocrat, big man, I think, <laughs> condottieri, I mean, <laughs> tough guy. And I think what's interesting about that is that, I mean, I, when I show people around the Capitoline Museums, I usually stop by it because it is one of those sculptures that people think, oh, that looks a bit odd. Well, yes, it does look a bit odd because <laughs> there's something very odd that's happened to it. And people's reaction is often, as mine was to start with, well, that's that's a bit much, isn't it? You know, that's, you know, take the head off an ancient statue, put a new one in, new sculpture, you know, kind of using the cachet of Julius Caesar. The secret is, of course, that that's exactly what the Romans used to do. And Roman emperors would find statues of Alexander the Great, take the head off, 
shove their own head in. And there you have, you've kind of inserted yourself into the glamour and eclat of Alexander. And it, it, it is a, I mean, I think it's a very instructive habit because that happens more often than one thinks because it actually shows us really that these these statues they're finished but they're always works in progress too they're always being altered they're having you know they're being restored they're being turned into someone else and it's quite an instructive I think lesson for our own statue wars to see quite how ancient Romans didn't venerate the statues of all their predecessors. They used them for their own advantage. They altered them. Sometimes sometimes they put their own head into an old body. Sometimes they thought, I don't much like Nero. So they got their chisels out and they recut Nero to make him Vespasian. So these sculptures are always sort of on the move. And that one in the Capitol Museums of Barnese is, is, is a particularly nice example because actually, you know, in the in the light of history, it really doesn't work, <laughs> but I bet I bet the sculpture was pleased. <laughs> Funny sometimes how sculpt- sculptures that didn't work end up mattering anyway. Yeah, well, like uh, old Washington. Yes. Totally. No artist, or at least no post-imperial artist, surfaces more in the book than Titian. You note there is a coin-informed portrait of Augustus in Titian's 1509-ish Christ and the Adulteress, which is now in Glasgow. You write extensively about Titian's 11 Caesars installation in Mantua and their influence as extended through print culture. There's Titian's portrait of Jacopo Strada now in Vienna. And so I'd imagine that as you wrote the lectures from which this book descended, and then as you worked on the book, that you thought a lot about why Titian kept mining the very histories that you've worked on and that, that have interested you. Why was he so interested in in this period? I think it's interesting, and it's particularly interesting because Titian comes from Venice, and one of the, you know, one of the badges of honor in a way that Venice had was that it wasn't a Roman town. Right? Right, <laughs> there's, not totally. many, there's not many towns in Italy which you could say not Roman. And let me just Venice. jump in to point out that there are a number of Venetian artists that that you reference in the book. Veronese also. So there are a bunch of Venetians. It's not just Titian. Yes, no, there are a bunch of Venetians. And, and in some ways, it's quite surprising because we tend to think of, well, put it the other way. You know, if, if you're a Gonzaga at Mantua and you want some busts, you want some paintings of emperors. Titian is quite an interesting choice because, because Venice doesn't have that sort of association with emperors. But I, and I think that Titian found a real capacity for dialoguing between the present and the past in looking at these Roman emperors. And I was quite surprised, really, that I ended coming back to Titian so much. And ah. I could have I could have come back to Rubens, you know, perhaps, and I think maybe Rubens has had a bit of a bit of short shrift, but that was where I thought I would end up being, you know, being centered. But I I kept finding in all sorts of ways I was returning tradition. And I think why he was so interesting was that in some ways, I suppose you can say that any modern artist who represents a Roman emperor is, you know, they're bound to be in dialogue between their own world and the past. You know, that's, that's in a sense what representing a Roman emperor is. I suppose that I found that Titian did that in a particularly striking and interesting way. I mean, so that 
I think one of, I, I now think, you asked me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have known this, but <laughs> I now think one of, you know, the greatest casualties in the whole of the history of art, Western art, I mean, and post-Renaissance Western art, let's narrow it down, has been Titian's 11 emperors that he did for the Gonzagas at Mantua, which uh, had a very checkered history after he did these 11 portraits. They ended up coming coming to England and then after the execution of Charles I, who owned them going to Spain, and then they were destroyed in an 18th century fire, absolutely, completely destroyed. But for, for a couple of hundred years, at least, they, they absolutely defined how people saw emperors. People didn't actually go back so much to you know, some you know, craggy, wrinkly-necked ancient bust of Julius Caesar. They would go back to Titian's Julius Caesar. Why I think they were so so gripping, so kind of undeniably important for people is the way he, he really brought together quite accurately, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, observed faces taken from, from Roman imperial coins, but with a really dynamic kind of Titian-esque bodies. So the, the people would say the, these emperors seemed really alive, but he also absolutely brilliantly made it impossible to ignore the fact we were also looking at the present as well as the past. So one of Titian's series, Emperors, as we can tell from the copies that have survived, uh, one of the series, Mantua, is actually dressed in a piece of contemporary 16th century armour, which actually still exists in the Bargello in Florence. So Titian was really in the business of making you think about how ancient empire and modern empire and modern people went together. And I think that's what gave him the power. Now, I have to be careful here because I mustn't say that Rubens wasn't doing that. But but I, I, I just, you know, sometimes when you write a book, you end up going in a different way from the one you expected. And as I said, if you'd said to me before I gave the lectures, Titian's going to be have a really big part to play. I'd have said, really? <laughs> but he did. And I devote a, a whole chapter to not just his 11 emperors, but the copies of them, which you find, you know, once you kind of, once your eyes are open, you find Titian's emperors all over the place. You know, they're on porcelain teacups, they're in, turned into statues. They are the face of the Roman dynasts for, for a long time. And, and interestingly, and this is one of the fun bits of doing the book, we've sort of forgotten them. You know, 100 years ago, we wouldn't have, but we've, we've sort of passed out. You know, while we're talking about decoration and those Titian 11 Caesars were designed as the... I don't know, centerpiece, the, the intellectual centerpiece, the pictorial centerpiece of a grand room. While we're on those Titians, let's also talk about another. There are actually a lot of decorative ensembles in the book. But let's talk about, a, a, again, a somewhat regrettable one at Hampton Court in a ceremonial stairway designed by Christopher Wren. And it's a stairway that at the time led up to the staterooms of the king's apartments. Big deal staircase. It looks exactly what you think a royal staircase should look like. You really um, have to like Baroque to like it. Oh, oh my God. Yes. I mean, and you all, I mean, you know, and, and you, you very entertainingly point out how it was painted by an Italian artist, Schmoozer, 
named Antonio Vario. And it's a spectacle of, of the Caesars. And so I don't want to ask about the Vario because just wow. But I am interested in, in this decoration, the importance of decoration. So as with the Titians and, and a number of other works, there is often an overlapping relationship between portraiture and decoration and in specific powerful royal or duckle contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think we should take or understand anything about decoration as being a key element in Caesar's informed presentation? Why did decoration matter? Why did it work? I don't know if I know the answer to that, but I, I, I'll give you one lead. Uh, and it starts from Hampton Court. You rightly say this is a, a grand staircase. Uh, the, it's the king's staircase. It's going up to the ceremonial apartments. You couldn't avoid it. And it's it's not just a kind of piece of, well, calling it Baroque decoration is rather sort of underplaying it, I think. It is decorative. It's kind of, it's Caesar wallpaper, if you like, uh. in a, a very overblown way. But it's one of those cases which I think really challenges you to think about the kind of decorative role or the role in general of these images of emperors. Because what you've got is it's a very little known story is represented, a satire by a later emperor, Julian, who looked back at his predecessors on the Roman throne and said they were all a load of absolute awful world tyrants. And he wrote this very funny skit where the emperors decide they want to go and have dinner with the gods one day. And all the all the dead emperors are lined up to come and you know, go and sup on Olympus with the gods. And the gods go through them one by one and say, we don't want any of that lot, thank you very much. They might possibly have the philosopher Marcus Aurelius, but all the others you know, you're not welcome here, guys. And I see an interesting apparent clash between the, the ubiquity of these figures in royal palaces, in all kinds of decorative contexts, on walls, on silverware, on ceramics, you know, they're put on the ceiling, they're in tapestry, they're absolutely everywhere, with a very clear and sometimes paraded and pointed to sense that they're actually a load of disgusting, sadistic, often assassinated bastards. <laughs> and, you know, one of the big puzzles, well, I don't think I solve entirely in the book, but one of the driving puzzles of the book is, is how you match up their omnipresence in the decoration of upmarket houses, particularly in Europe, but not only, you know, going way, way beyond a lineup of busts, but, you know, onto you know, everything that could be decorated with a Roman emperor was, basically, with that sense that everybody knew what they were like. They were not admirable. And so there is a kind of interesting clash here, which I, I found myself surprisingly, I think, for me, suspecting that some of these guys you know, these monarchs in their vast palaces were a bit more aware about the trickiness of their position. They were a bit more aware about the contests of autocracy, a bit more aware about who you should and shouldn't admire than we usually give them credit for. You know, we usually think that, you know, why do you have, why do you paint emperors all over your walls? Because you want to kind of be like them. Well, Nobody wants to be like Roman emperors, you know. They only have to sit for a couple of minutes 
to realize that that is not how you want to be. So they're setting up a kind of set of, of much more complicated counterexamples with which they surround themselves. But I think, you know, going back to your question, is really is hinting that often decoration, what we call decoration, works in a bit more complicated way than we think it does. It's not, it's not just wallpaper. It's not just nice to look at. It's not just our heroes, the people that we like. They're not pinups. Intersecting in a quite interesting but conflicting way with the people who are looking at them. And of course, the people who are looking at them is not just the king, you know, <laughs> it's the cleaning ladies. I do try a, a bit and think about, or the, even the decoration of a palace, you know, there was somebody going around there with a duster who was not an aristocrat. And so there are interesting ways that you can start to think about how, how these different viewpoints piece together. Well, speaking of the way in which artists have, have kind of jumped off from the less savory aspects of the Imperial Dozen. One of the more entertaining detective stories in the book is the story of the Emperor Vitellius and how he pops up like Where's Waldo across art history. So bef before I ask you for a specific example of how an artist or artists did that, uh, maybe quickly, who is Vitellius, the actual living and breathing Vitellius, and for what was he known? He was known for being bad. Um, <laughs> was a, a very, very short-term, few months emperor who was briefly in power during the civil war that followed the death of Nero. Nero is forced to suicide in 68. There's then three short-lived emperors, of which Vitellius is one, and then Vespasian is the last man standing and he starts a new dynasty. We don't know very much about Vitellius. Most of what we know is probably, you know, a appalling spin from the other side, but he has gone down in history as being sadistic, but also particularly gluttonous. You know, there was nothing Vitellius liked more than, you know, stuffed peacocks and a good dinner. Until the late 19th century, at least, the adjective Vitellian was quite a, a common adjective in English for a very, very lavish banquet. <laughs> come and have, you know, come to my Vitellian banquet. So in terms of Roman history, he's a nothing, basically. A bad nothing. Not, however, how he is in art history. Where he becomes enormously useful to painters, especially. So virtually, as you note in the book, this isn't me, of course, Virtually every artistic representation of Vitellius is based on a single, roughly half meter high portrait bust. What what is that bust, and what is so, I guess, both <laughs> ironic and iconic about it? The truth is, the portrait bust has got in. You know, if we're going to be academic about this, modern academic has nothing whatsoever to do with Vitellius. A, a recurring every, story in the book. <laughs> every stylistic feature of this statue makes it clear it must be mid-2nd century AD, about 100 years, made 100 years after Vitellius. However, it was left to the, it was dug up in Rome, left to the, the city of Venice by Cardinal Grimani, and everybody, and it was one of those alluring kind of matches with coins. You know, because Vitellius, even though he was only on the throne for a few months, he minted coins. Every Roman emperor has to mint coins because they've got to pay their soldiers. And on the coins, he's got very sort of saggy chin. I mean, it's not like Julius Caesar with a, with a sort of scraggy line. He's got jowls and fat and podgy. And nobody could resist 
know, from the 16th century onwards, nobody could resist saying it's an absolute dead ringer for this statue. This statue must be Vitellius. Certainly isn't, but throughout, you know, still actually, the, the statue is called the Grimani Vitellius. So people now tend to put Vitellius in inverted commas, but he still has the name. And he was the most replicated ancient statue in late Renaissance and later painting that you could possibly find. I mean, I usually say when people go around a reasonable sized art gallery with, you know, as long as the paintings go, as long as it's not just modern art, though it crops up in modern art too. You know, if you can't find a Vitellius in this gallery, you haven't looked hard enough. <laughs> so how do artists use him? What, what, how do they, what does he mean for them? What does he signify? Well, one answer to that, and I don't think it's the right answer, but one answer would be mm. to say he's a very, very distinctive face. He sure does. Um, and it, that's true. He is a very distinctive face. So you're looking for something to copy that, you know, really has an edge and a distinction. So you go to Vitellius and uh, there you've, you've got your model. And I think there's been a tendency, not entirely, there's been a tendency for art historians to say it was just a, a good model. You know, it didn't mean anything. That it, now, I suppose what I think is that these guys who were copying this Vitellius, they, you know, they knew what Vitellius was all about. Right? You know, they, they were better than us in, in knowing the, at least the thumbnail characteristics of these emperors. And I think more often than not, when Vitellius is introduced into a painting, as he frequently is, as well as being a good model, there's also a clever and interesting point being made. And the absolutely classic one for me is Veronese's now called Feast at the House of Levi in the Academia Gallery in Venice. And it is basically, it was designed as a Last Supper. He, for various complicated reasons, he changed the title of the painting. But a long table, Jesus is sitting centre stage, and the front, they're having a quite a good banquet. And at the very front of the canvas is a carver. Veronese called him a carver. He's there dressed in his kind of carving outfit, sort of, you know, a, a sort of major domo. He's quite a portly servant. But he's looking across at Jesus, absolutely transfixed. And in some ways, it looks like what we're seeing here is a conversion narrative. But this carver is making the, is getting the meat ready for the Last Supper, sees Jesus and sees the light. Now, the point is that this carver has a face of Vitellius, that the, the face is absolutely, undoubtedly modelled on the Grimani Vitellius. And so you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, it seems to me that there's a lot of points going on. I mean, first of all, this is a, a, a narrative of conversion in some way, looks like it's happening. And here you've got one of the most sadistic Roman emperors, who now we see actually retrospectively being converted by Jesus, by the sight of Jesus. So Vitellius, the chronology doesn't fit, never mind. Vitellius is, we're witnessing the tables being turned. And that Roman emperor is now enthralled to Jesus, not the other way. 
And I think also there's a very sort of funny classical joke for people who know about Vitellius, which is that what's the reputation of Vitellius? Well, absolute gluttony sits down. He's the, you know, he's the host. He's the person who is, you know, the centre at dinner, etc., etc. Here, what's Veronese done? Turned him into the servant. He's the carver. So the, the bon viveur has become the man who cuts the meat up. A Venetian and move, perhaps. I think it might be a Venetian move. And I think you miss out quite a lot if you don't start to say, look, there might be something more than just convenient model going on here. You know, we're being asked to think about Vitellius in relation to this scene. And there's lots of others. So I do, I hope if people get the book and they kind of lodge in their head, the picture of Vitellius. Visits to galleries will be enlivened by finding more of them. The example that really, you know, sold the salt for me was your example of Thomas Couture's The Orgy, (laughs) which we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com and I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But Vitellius for, for Couture was so noticeable and so recognizable that he could bury him at the far left and in deepest shadow and still count on the audience finding, recognizing and understanding why he was there. Yes, yes. And it's very funny because he's actually, he's dropping off to sleep because it's at the very, yes. very end of the party and he's got his nose almost in a kind of naked odalisque and he kind of hasn't noticed. And so, you know, here is the great glutton asleep. Yeah, it's really, it's the detail that makes the over the top, the over the top painting. Yeah. The people, uh, you know, in the salon when it was first exhibited, they spotted Vitellius. You know, people thought Vitellius was absolutely, we don't see him. At the time, he was, as you say, instantly recognizable. Necessarily, the book is mostly about representations of men. The Caesars were dudes. But you do introduce a, I don't want to say a companion set of prints of imperial women but women do come 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 into the story. You refer to a, a series of prints made by a Flemish printmaker who pops up a good bit in the book named Sadler, who makes a series of 24 imperial women in, to borrow your phrase, flouncy frocks, which is totally true. And of course, because they're women, at least one of them is portrayed as being simultaneously dressed in a flouncy frock and bare-breasted. And, there, and then you also reference um, examples in marble, you know, and, and, and you talk about how individual, how women are de- denied individuality, let alone agency. Do the representations of not, not empresses, but the women affiliated with the Caesars, both in Roman times and ever after, mostly point us to the construction of patriarchy in the Western tradition, or do they also contribute to it? They do both, I think, but that in in the modern painting painting tradition, at least from the eight, late eighteenth century onwards, they also do something to challenge it. I think mm. what is very striking, if you look at the imagery of Roman, I call them empresses. They're not te- no right. the term empress doesn't really exist, but it's a convenient shorthand. What is interesting that the literary tradition about these women is, you know, as lurid as about their menfolk. You know, they are adulterous, poisoning, sadistic, etc., etc. Perhaps even more than the men. I mean, you know, there aren't statues of the men that make them look like villains. But the women, I mean, are an absolute lookalike 
series of almost identicals from the beginning of the empire, you know, for hundreds of years, with the only difference being some changing hairstyles, honestly. You can put three of them together and you can say, you could, how could you tell these? And there is a kind of attempt, very strong attempt, I think, in ancient sculpture to represent them as, as fundamentally upholding the patriarchy of Rome. They are, you know, what are they doing? Giving birth to legitimate children to be the sons and heirs of the dynasty. And certainly when printmakers and painters came you know, from the Renaissance on to, to try to recapture empresses, it was, it was a harder nut to crack. And they did. They took refuge in a few bare breasts and fancy flocks. What I think is interesting is that from the end of the 18th century, particularly, I'm sure you can find examples before, but as a, as a, a clear theme, they painters start to use them as ways, I think, of challenging in different, in different senses, challenging the very nature of what the dynasty is about or challenging the kind of the sadistic underpinnings. And so you, you get very memorable recreations of those women who are the victims of the imperial regime, so-called Agrippina the Elder, you know, who was lovingly holding the, the ashes of her murdered husband, Germanicus, you know, in his tomb. So they're pointing you to the costs, the domestic and personal costs of empire, I think, in the body of Agrippina the Younger, Agrippina the Elder's daughter, who was murdered by Nero, her mother. Women, you know, I think in some ways in a rather uncomfortable way for us, are treated as very obviously victims of the regime, but also in being victims of the regime, they're pointing up, in a sense, what the cruelty of the regime. So Angra has a, has a particularly a wonderful set of images, which, you know, in a sense, uses one particular woman to, in a sense, to kind of show the dystopian world of the Roman imperial palace behind the scenes. Because it's a, a very famous scene, again, one not that much known now, of um, Virgil. Virgil, the poet Virgil, has come along to the imperial palace to give a, a little preview reading from his great epic, The Aeneid, to Augustus and his family. And at one point, the poem mentions uh, Marcellus, who's Augustus's nephew, who's died. And Angra encapsulates this scene, many painters do, because what happens according to an ancient text, fantasy ancient text, is that when Virgil is reading a little bit about Marcellus out to the imperial party. Marcellus's mother is so upset she faints. And these paintings always kind of <laughs> imagine, you know, this domestic disaster. The poor old poet has gone there. He's re reading out his brand new composition and, and Octavia has fainted, you know, blimey. You know, that's, that's what a poet needs, isn't it? But there's a kind of secret figure that Angra adds in, which is, uh, Augustus's wife, Livia, who in some of his paintings is rather coldly cradling the fainted Octavia, looking the other way, looking a little bit, a little bit nasty. Well, you know the story, you know exactly why Livia is looking nasty. It's because she is believed to have murdered Marcellus by point to, or to ensure the poisoning of Marcellus. So there she is, 
cradling the mother of the bloke she's done away with. And somehow, I mean, I think Anne there is using that sort of appalling image of a dysfunctional family to open our eyes a bit to the dysfunction of empire. You know, what, mm-hmm. now what does empire mean? What does, what does dynasty mean? It means people like Livia poisoning. I mean, I'm sure this is, none of this is true, by the way. Poisoning uh, their way out of trouble. And then, you know, cool as a cucumber, you know, cradling the upset mum. And you think, if you know the story, it is a very, 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 very nasty painting indeed. And that's another place, I think, where you don't know the story. It's, it's an interesting painting. You can look at it. But actually opening these up with the classical background really adds to, adds to what you see. Let's close with one last underlining of, of that as the thesis of the book and how understanding that doesn't just make the artworks more in, interesting. It helps us understand the ideology of the artist, the ideas embedded in the artwork, and often the, the present those artists are, are trying to address. One of my favorite passages of the book was about uh, a canova of Letizia Bonaparte, Madame Mare, as it were, from, from 1804. There are a lot of Agrippinas, let's put it that way. <laughs> too many, so, so, too many so, Agrippinas. So what is that canova based on and what might it tell us about what Canova was saying in portraying Madame Bonaparte. It, it, it's a, it's a, a, a wonderful puzzle, actually, because it, we know exactly the statue it was based on. Uh, it's based on a statue which is still there in the centre of the room of the emperors in the Capitoline Museums at Rome. Another grand story of misidentification, because we now believe it to be 4th century AD and possibly the Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, but who knows? (laughs) Back in the 18th century, it was believed to be, it was given the title always, Agrippina. Agrippina, and I I will slim the options down, there are basically in Rome at that period two Agrippinas. There's a very, very virtuous Agrippina, the widow of Germanicus, who was murdered, a goodie, a very good woman. And then there was her wicked daughter, Agrippina the Younger, who was the murderer of the Emperor Claudius and then was killed by Nero and did a lot of awful things in between. So when Canova chooses that model to model Letizia Bonaparte, he's choosing Agrippina. Well, the question's going to be which Agrippina? It, it gets talked about in two ways. Some people say, God, this is plagiarism, right? You know, here's Canova, and what's he done? He's just copied. He's copied this, put the features of Madame on, but he's just copied this sculpture. Other people saw that if you so closely copy an ancient sculptor of Agrippina, you were trying to tell us something about Madame Mer. The question they couldn't agree on, however, was what you were trying to tell us. Because some people thought that the Agrippina of the Capitoline Museums that he copied was the virtuous elder Agrippina, in which case, hugely flattering to Madame Mer. Others thought that it was the nasty, not at all virtuous, younger Agrippina, who indeed had had an affair with Nero as well as being murdered by him, so an incestuous affair with her son, which case very definitely an undesirable comparison (laughs) for Madame Mère. And so there's a bit of a jostling about that. The kind of sting in the tail, I'm afraid, takes it away from the women 
and says, maybe the message wasn't really about Madame Mayor being Agrippina at all. Maybe what we were supposed to think is, what were the sons of these women doing? Mm. Well, Madame Mayor, son Napoleon Bonaparte. The two Agrippinas both have sons who come to the throne, Caligula and Nero. And even if the elder Agrippina was supposed to be virtuous, one thing we knew for absolute sure is that both their sons were vile pieces of work. <laughs> so you cannot help but think maybe it's Napoleon who's in the background here. And what we're being asked to choose is, is he more like Caligula or like Nero? Not much of a choice. But you know, if you if you just look at it and you don't say, so what are the implications of saying that's Agrippina? You've mi- you just missed out a bit, and you know we people still debate whether you know what kind of his intentions were, how intentionally he was either getting at or praising Letizia Bonaparte and what the role of Napoleon was. But there's sure something about Agrippina built into that statue, even though, ha ha, we now know that the statue wasn't Agrippina at all. Right. (laughs) Right. And, you know, one of the great ways that this book worked on me is that it got me thinking of how to extend some of these examples further into American art. William Wetmore's stories, great 1858 and after sculpture of Cleopatra at the Met, the LA County Museum, Virginia MFA, and the High in Atlanta is based on or informed by one or both of these sculptures. And your book is, in a way, a, 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 a call to, to go do some work on that. So for that and, and for spending this time with me, Mary Beard, thank you. Thank you very much. That was great fun. <laughs> Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Sean Scully, The Shape of Ideas, featuring the artist's most significant works. The exhibition, organized by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, examines Scully's contribution to the development of abstraction over a span of nearly five decades. Highlighting the close relationship between the artist's paintings, drawings, prints, and pastels, these works are rarely shown together. The Shape of Ideas presents 49 paintings and 42 works on paper, that reflect the many phases of a long and varied approach to art making. At The Modern through October 10th. Information at themodern.org.
Welcome back. Next up, Tabitha Soren joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of surface tension at the Mills College Art Museum in Oakland, California. The exhibition features work from Soren's series of the same title, pictures of iPad screens made to reveal how we interact with digital screens in ways that join touch, art history, and the present. The exhibition is on view through December 12th. Works from the series have previously been shown at museums such as the Davis at Wellesley College and at Transformer Station in Cleveland. Soren's work is in the collections of a bunch of museums, including the Getty, the Harvard Art Museums, the New Orleans Museum of Art, and the George Eastman Museum. RVB Books has published a book of pictures from the series that's out this month. It's also titled Surface Tension and includes an essay by Gia Tolentino. As of taping, it's available from RVB Books for 29 euros. If it becomes available at a U.S. site, we'll add it to the show page at manpodcast.com. Tabitha Soren, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. What got you interested in or thinking about digital tablet screens and how we interact with them? Well, I felt like a lot of my time was being determined by my touching of these screens, both my phone and my iPad. And I felt like I was arguing a lot with my children about how much time they were spending on them. And I think that the struggle of not living my life online or allowing my children to do so created a lot of tension in my head because, of course, it's also magic. The Internet allows us to do so many things that otherwise we wouldn't have access to. And I I just think the performative aspect of the Internet was something I was not comfortable with. I used to work in television and I felt like there was this push in the outer reaches of the of everyday life that was trying to turn everyone into this performative human being. And that there were times where there were many, many, many times where I was watching people ignore the human beings in front of them and staring at their screens instead. And this isn't news to anybody, but I just wondered, like, what would happen if we were touching each other or thinking about what we were going to say to an actual human being that we cared about that could see us in context instead of swiping screens and distilling our quote unquote selves into, you know, two lines on Twitter that have no context. I felt like it was all of the sort of communal and opportunities for community that the internet promised actually provided me specifically with a lot of alienation. Is there anything about the way tablets and our ways of interacting with them has a relationship to photography that interests you? Susan Sontag wrote in the 70s a lot about photography as a distancing mechanism and that the documentary act of taking a photograph fundamentally limited the action one might take on any scene. And I think that there is this perplexing aspect. You've all, we've all seen people in museums and on vacation that they are looking at beauty in a frame or beauty in front of them, and in, they'll have it right in front of their nose, and instead of looking at it with their own eyes, they're instead have their camera phone in front of them recording it. And it's almost as if screens and tablets have made us accustomed to being served up our own experience, to having it mediated before we can just, you know, experience it as a real person and embrace it as our own. And I think that's a loss. 
Virginia Heffernan wrote this wonderful book called Magic and Loss. And I feel like everything I go to say about technology or the internet, like there are, I, I don't want to come across as anti-technology, but there is this magical quality to it. But then there's also this, it is, you know, definitely there's a loss as well. And the tension between those two things is very prevalent in surface tension. I think on a, on a very basic level, what you're looking at when I'm taking these pictures is something that you couldn't see if I wasn't shooting them with such a large negative. So I'm using a very old-fashioned camera. I'm using a camera that you could have had in the 19th century. And for me, it was the best way to record all the tiny 21st century details that our eyes can't really see in real life. The scale of an 8x10 negative blown up to 5x7 feet of an 8x10 inch tablet really, I'm hoping, takes you out of what you're normally looking past. And I'm hoping the scale and the quiet of an exhibition space or perhaps a photo book would allow one to think about how they're spending their time. So the, the analog photography just was a really important element of this process. There, there are three things we see when we see these works, and I'm going to go through each of the three. Just to start, the three are fingerprints and evidence of physical interaction with, with the tablet. There is the image that is coming out of the tablet screen at us, and then there's the one that I want to start with. And I don't know the technical term for this. I don't know if there is a technical term for this. But a lot of the pictures show us the underlying material of the tablet. It's kind of a grid of reds and greens and blues. It is the the pixels and such from which the image or words on our tablets is constructed. Was revealing the, 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 the colors and the presence of that grid an accident planned? Were, were you happy it came through and was part of part of the images you were making? I knew I wasn't going to be able to get around the screen grid and I grew to like it, but it wasn't my intention. It wasn't at the front of my mind. I think mainly what I was thinking about was the difference between the, our messy selves, the bacteria, the sweat, the grime, the debris that accumulates on our screens and the perfectly designed, slick, cold device. So the, the, the crush between the primal, messy, sweaty human being and the perfect device, I wanted to see that contrast. And I think almost exclusively, but I can't say for sure, a lot of the images were, I grabbed the iPad out of my son's hands. My son is going through puberty. His hands sweat a lot. So some of the best glistening screen effects that you're noticing are actually from the sweat on his hands because when I side light the iPad, the, you know, I can't actually see the sweat when I'm looking at it with my eye, but I can see it after the view camera blows it up. And those sweat drops turn into these beautiful rainbow prisms. So the juiciest ones have to do with, you know, hormones, <laughs> which was not planned, but worked out really well. 
So speaking of those fingerprints and smudges, you know, they're enormous. You know, in, in, in your works on a wall, they're really enormous. And they are evidence of our physical interaction, not just with the object, the tablet, but they're kind of an archaeology of seeing and reading. What about presenting the way we touch the tablet and indeed sort of touch the image drew you to it? I felt like I was trying to capture sort of the, a contemporary atmosphere of our time and to have this haptic motion over the top of the images that fill my, you know, doom scrolling or my social media feeds or my homepage of news I've looked at, I felt like it added an element of atmosphere and spirituality and just our, our compulsion to use these, these feeds that I hadn't seen before. I felt like I was trying to amplify the way that we spend our time. The, the, the haptic motion makes an interesting photograph, but also it's, as you mentioned, it's a kind of a map of how you're spending your day. And I do really believe that we are how we spend our time. So we need to pay attention to what we're doing and what we're thinking and, and, and realize that you know, there are companies on the other end of this that are making money from all this content and that the, of course, we all are wanting to express ourselves and form an identity and have our identity shift, but it always hasn't been like in this public realm in this way. And at the same time, it hasn't been, you know, part of a capitalist enterprise where you have these companies hoping that we become addicted to the process to make more money off of us. And I just think that's important to have in our brains as, you know, to fight against the seduction to a certain extent. I, I do think that a lot of this is so unnerving because it hardly registers as experience. I think we just prod at our phones from morning to evening and we're, we're seeking something beyond what we have. And I don't know that the internet has the answer to that. And so I think of these pictures as contemporary cave paintings. And as you know, I mean, the, the animals in the cave paintings in France get a lot of attention, but the, but the majority of what you see in there are handprints. And I do feel like, you know, those, those artists or their entourages, they left these handprints in caves and they were, nobody knows exactly, of course, what they were thinking or why they were doing this. But in my mind, they were palping this living rock perhaps with the hopes of reaching or summoning a force beyond it. And I think that that is a similar impulse now with us and screens. And I like to think that these images sort of forge a link between the ancient and the modern. Well, the, the third element here is it certainly forges a link with art history. So we've been talking about, you know, the pixels, the, the stuff the tablets are made out of and then, and then touching them. But of course, the other thing here is is the images that are on these screens that that are part of your work. And so I want to raise a couple that I think are rich with art historical resonance and talk and find out about how important that is or isn't to you. There are, there are a couple of surface tension pictures of icebergs. You can tell from the title of the pictures that they're kind of vacation photos on, on, on a tablet. One of the icebergs is Negetti's collection. It's called... Katie's vacation photo. It's from 2018. 
And of course, it reminds me and probably just about everybody who sees it immediately of Frederick Church's Great the Icebergs at, at the Dallas Museum of Art. Church's work is an intensely political painting, as Church's paintings had been for that point, at that point for 15 years. In, in, in the church, the painting of an iceberg is a reference to contemporary political discourse, because across the 1850s, liberal Northerners had rued that while Southerners in Washington acted and voted as a sectional bloc, that Northerners had failed to do so, that many Northerners voted with the South. So in 1848, Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster first starts talking about how it would be necessary, is necessary for an American North to coalesce, and an American popular culture and visual culture, icebergs and ice and iced over lakes suddenly become prominent in everything from, you know, magazine illustrations to, to paintings like churches. So this is all a long way of asking. When you're showing icebergs, are you interested in that history and kind of indeed maybe some shared histories between 2018 and like, you know, 1860, <laughs> 1859? I absolutely am interested. I would not say that I had churches painting in mind. All of the images in the backgrounds of these pictures are appropriated. Most of them are from amateur photographers or people I know. Every one of them I've gotten permission to use. And if it's a professional photograph, like some of the fire images, those have been licensed. So just to get that out of the way, that is also why for the exhibition, I appropriated audio and video that is part of the multi-channel immersion room. So for that image, a friend of mine was on vacation and she texted me those pictures. And of course, the phone on the Apple phone at least is amazing. And they look like National <laughs> Geographic photos. It was insane. But in my mind, I was thinking about the conflict between human beings touching these faraway places that aren't really used to the amount of tourism and impact of humans human beings in them. So I'm thinking of melting glaciers. I'm thinking of Greenland shrinking. I'm thinking of coral reefs being bleached. I'm thinking about climate change. And I do feel like we find ourselves living amidst a number of compounding hells, global pandemic, you know, all these environmental disasters. And I wonder if the coarseness of the internet is a place that, that makes us care more about these serious problems or anesthetizes us to them. So I was thinking more about climate change for that glacier picture, but it, it is one of my favorites. And I like that it can be a lot of things to different people. The one I want to raise next is a picture of an eye. Its title starts with hrw.org, humanrightswatch.org, and it's from 2021. It is inevitably a picture that recalls the famous Rene Magritte painting at the Museum of Modern Art, a painting about reality and surreality. And of course, surreal means hyperreal, not unreal. Were you thinking about or interested in Magritte and particularly in the question of what is and isn't real, especially seeing as we see, as in the other works, smudges? So I would say that Magritte is one of my least favorite artists. So I can confirm that I did not have his work in my mind. I was really thinking about the attention economy when I made this picture. I think that everything that we like or watch or share represents this tiny ripple of, you know, in the information battlefield. And 
people are paying to get your attention and track it and influence it. And I think that that is what I wanted people to be thinking about and, and valuing their response to all of these companies trying to engage us online. And I think that what is known can be reshaped through commanding people's attention through these tweets and viral videos and likes. And I just think that that we, we kind of think of truth as being more widely available than ever, but in fact, you know, it can be buried in the sea of likes and lies and that, and that veracity doesn't matter as much as virality. And that is something that's going to be in my head when I'm looking at that image, but I don't know that that would be communicated to other people. I think that it doesn't really matter. I think on the, on the very surface level, the first thing that most people think of is with that image is about surveillance and how often we are tracked and how often we are on camera and how much of what we do is reported to you know, various people and how these labels can get us into trouble, as especially if you are a black or brown person. You know, one of the other historical references I find in the work is a reference to pentimenti, the way painters often leave evidence of the process of making within the work. And of course, it's different in, in, in your works here. Painters like Diebenkorn or Matisse are leaving evidence of making. And in your work, there's evidence of seeing or reading, as the case, I guess, could be. Is that relationship between painting and making and tablets and seeing intentional, fundamental? It's absolutely intentional. And I think about that all the time. It is something that we see in painting much more. But I would say that I discovered the beauty of this facet of making art when, when I was making tintypes. I was teaching myself how to do it. And I was working on this project about sports, not really about sports, but it looked like it was about sports. And I was making these tintypes in my dark room. And I kept dropping them. So I'd have to pick them up. And you're working in, you know, it was before I got used to working in total darkness. You can't even have a red light or anything. So, you know, things slipped out of my hands. And when I picked them up, I was trying to make this perfectly slick, clean, you know, emulsion flat all over the place tintype. And instead, the, what I ended up with was something with my fingerprints on the edges or the emulsion uneven, and therefore parts of the image being kind of bright white. And it turned out that those actually were my favorites, that I'm not actually interested in making what looks like a perfect object. I feel like life is very difficult. There are twists and turns, and you get, you know, we're, we're kind of all standing on the edge of the abyss. We just don't know it. And I feel like work that shows some sort of struggle or upheaval or the unexpected is what I relate to best. That's what moves me, both from my own work and other people's. So that idea that actually, you know, I prefer the part where the sort of emulsion is uneven and bright white, it turned into like a religious ecstasy tintype instead of something you know, of just a picture looking up at the sky. And having my fingerprints around the frame didn't look like a mistake to me. It looked like a record of the struggle of making art, of living life, 
of expressing yourself. Finally, your your work has long been interested in the difference between how we see things and how they actually are. So, for example, your series from the beginning of the 21st century, Fantasy Life, Baseball, and the American Dream, juxtaposes the reality of life as a low-wage worker in baseball's minor leagues with the romance and hyper-Americanness of baseball, which was once, of course, the national pastime. How do those interests in how things are and how we see them play out across this series? <laughs> oh, it's in a thousand different ways. I, I think that people are seeking something from the internet and social media that they're not always getting. And I feel like there's a huge opportunity cost there. I feel like when we are touching our screens, we're not receiving the same sort of emotional effects that one does when you are touching another human being. There's tons of research about the levels of serotonin that are increased by actually touching the flesh of another person. There's these, all this empathy response and positive emotional impact on the recipient as well as the hugger. I think that staring into our devices does not make our identity more clear to us or other people. And I think that's one of the reasons I made these Narcissus pieces. These are these black floor, they're photographs of just the fingerprints. There's no background. So the background is just black. And the black allows a viewer to look down into the piece as Narcissus did in the pond or the lake and be reflected back on themselves. And I really feel like that is something that we spend way too much time doing, not just teenagers, adults too, myself included. And there are numerous studies about people, basically a fifth of Americans say they spend, they're never offline. A fifth of Americans say they're never offline. I mean, that's shocking. And numerous studies show that the traits of narcissism actually correlate with compulsive social media updates, checking the number of followers, frequency of selfie posting, and there's a whole bunch of anxiety that comes with it. And now that's one of the reasons they attribute anxiety and panic disorders being the number one health issue on college campuses as opposed to depression. So these things don't exist in a vacuum. And so the magic and the beauty and the access to you know, community organizing and to a specific friend group or a group of people who feel as passionate about music from 1979 as you do, you know, just all of this niche culture that I love has a dark side to it as well. And I'm hoping that the surface tension images with their beauty and their violence can have these two things come together. And in a way, in a, you know, in an environment like a museum, like the Mills Museum, you have this quietness and this ability to contemplate that doom scrolling doesn't allow. I like that. I'm grateful for it too. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful for for podcasts and lots of things on the internet, but it is a struggle, you know, especially as an artist, my gosh, I really feel like there is a ton of technology that gets in the, in the way of me being in a creative space. And most artists I know are very aware of that. And, you know, they just have a certain amount of time, a certain part of the day that they deal with it. And then otherwise they're in their studio. And that's something that I really try to put into practice myself. So, so one of the things about technology and the internet is we think of it as this incredibly contemporary thing, right? When, you know, of course, clocks are technology. 
And there's all sorts of technology, the railroads with technology and industrial revolution. There's technology has shifted the world over and over and over again. So there's nothing particularly more awful about our situation now than then. But I came across this Ann Forster story called The Machine Stops, and it was written in 1909. And one of the quotes from it is, we have lost the sense of space. We have lost a part of ourselves. Cannot you see that it is we that are dying and that down here, the only thing that really lives is the machine? And I just, I was just like, what? <laughs> I mean, that can completely overlap with the struggle we're all dealing with. And, and this story is... Forster imagines a future where people live underground in isolated cells and they never see each other or com and they only communicate by audio and visual devices. And in this world, original thought and direct observation are discouraged. There's actually a quote that says, beware of firsthand ideas. And I really think we need to think about that. Like how much of our thoughts are actually our thoughts and how much are we just regurgitating something we read on Twitter? Retweeting something is not expressing yourself. Reminds me of James Glick's 1999 book, Faster, the Acceleration of Just About Everything, which is about how every generation always thinks that its pace of life is reached unimaginable and intolerable levels, and that different generations have been thinking that for, for hundreds of years. <laughs> there you are. That's the context I was looking for. So I am trying to, I'm attempting to visualize the invisible effects that technology has on all of us. This isn't the first time that people have grappled with these questions. Tabitha Soren, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.